Hello, hello. This is Casey Shoe Stanford. Tuesday, 9.30 in the morning, give or take. Impromptu instruments. This is the Henry George program. Henry George was the name of a cigar 80 years ago. Before that, the name of a famous American economist. Now the name of an economist that's not so famous. Uh, this is a show that's going to run on Tuesday mornings, today in a supersized edition. Featuring interviews, discussions about Henry George, about ideas related to Henry George, income inequality, wealth inequality, urban planning, and more. So without further ado, let's just get into it. This is a discussion that went on just a few days ago. Wow. Dramatic, dramatic end to that. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, so this is a conversation went on just a few days ago to myself. Jacob Schwartz, Lucas, and Edward Miller about the urban economies of Hong Kong, Singapore, and more. Without further ado, case you shoe. Okay, we are here. I'm joined via the telephone. Uh, Jacob Schwartz, Lucas, is uh, joining me. Uh, this is Jacob Schwartz, Lucas from EarthStrain.org, joining me from New York. Is that right? That's correct. I'm calling in from Brooklyn. And we have Edward Miller of the Henry George School of Chicago in Chicago. That's correct. Wow. Glad to be here. Okay. So, yeah, we're going to... also add that I represent the Robert Schockenbach Foundation as well. Okay, okay. Uh, So we are talking today about... Uh, well, it's a bit, it's a big it's a big thing to bite off. We're uh, talking about a lot of different cities, a lot of different urban uh, economies. We're talking Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, Korea. We're talking Singapore. Uh, we're even talking mainland China, uh, and just the connections of the urban economies and really see what we we could take away from all this. Uh, I guess one big thing that kind of brought this to a head. Uh, I personally, I. Uh, had the luxury of uh, taking a trip to Hong Kong for a few days this last October, and Jake has uh, spent, it was a couple weeks, right, in uh, Singapore? Yeah, yeah, I spent a significant amount of time in Singapore uh, recently. Yeah, Hong Kong and Singapore offer a lot of uh, interesting data points for for us. I I definitely was was there to kind of see it firsthand. And I guess yeah, we can start with uh, Singapore. Uh, yeah, what, what were you? What didn't you know before you went, and what were you kind of looking to to see in person? Well, I wasn't going there explicitly only for an interest in their economic system, urban planning, etc. But um, that's the primary reason that I went. But it was also an opportunity to firsthand a place that that I had read about and was very interested in from the perspective of um, alleviating poverty, economic growth, these sorts of issues. Um, And, you know, Singapore is one of the Asian tigers. It's uh, experienced rapid growth over the last 50 years since it became its own country. It's a a city. It's a city that's also a country. It's one of the few places on earth that's like that. Uh, another similar situation is the, the Vatican. And um, yeah, just, just skyrocketing economic growth since then. They have 
focus so intensely on you know developing exports and uh, you know pioneering in like high tech industries uh, finance you know things of things of that nature and uh, it's a tiny little island I would actually assume assume they've they've converted to an import economy given that they're an island and they can't uh, grow all that much food or anything like that. So certainly they are also a huge importer economy. Yeah, now now that's more the case. Um, but you know, in the beginning, it, it was all, all of the Asian tigers were mostly about export. And you know, it, it's interesting given the fact that uh, Singapore is so small. Um, you know, it, it, it's like I said, it's just an island. They have very little resources so they've had to make good use of the limited resources they have um you know one example that comes to mind is not just land but also water uh, there was a point in negotiations with uh, malaysia where malaysia just kept holding it over singapore's head that hey if you don't do what we want we're going to shut your water off and being industrious and uh, committed to to growth, they said, fine, we will reprocess our water. Um, so I, I think this example of using resources really well uh, also also extends to land. Um, every every square foot of Singapore is planned out in meticulous fashion. I went to the city gallery where they have a special exhibit on urban planning. Um, in Singapore, all of the land is is owned by the government, uh, and it basically leases it out. Uh, so, yeah, I, uh, let me make a correction. I think four fifths of the land is. I, I heard. Owned by I heard ninety percent is the number I heard recently. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's it's almost it's most of it. Right, it's it's the overwhelming majority of of the land. Uh, you know, compare that to Hong Kong, where you went, and Hong Kong, as I understand it, uh, the, the government owns all of the land. And w- with Singapore, what I was really struck by when I went to this museum and subsequent research is that they're they're really trying to be build these uh, smart this very smart city where they have sensors that measure all the wind going into uh, the, the space in between the buildings, the amount of sunlight that hits uh, each building. Uh, they actually do uh, tests on the elevators late at night when people aren't using them to see if they respond slower or there's other indications that the elevators are about to break down. And so they can go out and repair them before uh, they actually break down. So, so every um, inch of the island is just very well planned. Um, it, I mean, to go okay. And, I guess to go around, yeah. you know, the experience or what you kind of the baggage it holds. It, you know, every place has kind of a you know the one or two things people remember from it. Uh, Singapore, it has it's a weird kind of governance structure of you could call it the rule by technocrats. Uh, famous internationally for banning chewing gum, uh, I've I've heard it referred to as kind of just, you know, a, you know, a city that is just a gigantic mall in some ways. But that's the reputation it holds down. Uh, what was the experience like being around there? Uh, 
Yeah, I, th- I think a giant mall is a good way of describing at least the areas that I was in. I, I was struck by the fact that I I did not see one, from what I could tell, homeless person uh, while I was there. I They, they do exist, um, but there's yeah there's just not any out on the street that are that are visible um in the in the prime areas uh most people uh own their own um home they own their own flat i think the the percentage i read was 90 percent are are homeowners and a large portion of those people live in what's called hdb housing it's in the United States, we think of public housing as, as uh, icky, right? The project, um, place a place where you don't want to to have to live. But in Singapore, uh, the HDB housing is actually um, quite suitable. It's not luxurious necessarily. Now, the the new HDB housing actually does strike me as very luxurious. But it's you know it's just it's very livable. Um, a lot of mixed use, right? So in buildings, you'll have the ground level with uh, restaurants and food courts. And I think it really tends to encourage people to kind of, you know, meet at the bottom of the building and have community activities and to eat together. Um, and so that was an aspect of it that I that I really enjoyed, um, just that much more neighborhood uh, communal feel that I think we're lacking in the United States when we get in our little pods in our atomistic existence where we, you know, this, this car culture of, of sprawl where we don't really interact with each other as much. Now, I think the downside is that to reach this level of economic growth, they've also attenuated um, civil liberties to, to a large degree. There's a park where they have something called Speaker's Corner, and you can go there and say what you think, but really you you cannot amass a large group of people to protest or um, say things that are highly critical of of the government. Now, you you can do it online, but, uh, yeah, it, it's all... If you go too far, they can crack down on you, and so that was sort of a ne- negative aspect, but... Um, yeah, with this one-party dominated government, they've been able to do some some really amazing things on the front of of alleviating poverty. You know, so whether you think reducing civil liberties is worth it or not, I think is a you know a really interesting question. And there's also like if you're comparing, say, Singapore and the United States. Uh, Things that necessarily work in Singapore wouldn't necessarily work in a much larger country. These um, these situations don't scale in in all ways. So, although Hong Kong had very different policies and and uh, historically, although they've started to change, right? Is yeah, that so, right, Mark? Yeah, so so yeah, the transition to civil liberties in Hong Kong. Yeah, it's 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 a bit of a weird situation these days. Uh, so as I went into Hong Kong, I was reading a uh, this was in the uh, South Asia Morning Times. I feel like I'm getting that right uh, wrong, but uh, yeah, in the local newspaper they were talking about uh, young people 
more than half want to leave Hong Kong in long terms. Uh, and this was between some of it was the fact that rent is becoming increasingly expensive in uh, Hong Kong. But more than that, uh, yeah, uh, the fact that main, mainland uh, China government is cracking down on really their their civil liberties. They uh, were ceded from the UK, who had it on a 99-year lease, or at least you know part of the land, but they gave it all back in 97 to mainland uh, China with the agreement that they will have protections for 50 years. So 20 years down, 30 to go. It still you know, makes people kind of wonder... You know, is it, is it really a freedom if it's going to be away in a few years? Uh, yeah, the, the politics go. Uh, we're talking to uh, a friend uh, who is, you know, from Hong Kong, and she was saying that, yeah, they're just really fed up with the fact that the they can choose their own leader, but they are now vetted ahead of time by mainland China, and it's really, you know, not right. not their own choice. So there's protests. There's yeah, China. China is famous for that. They actually tried to cr- uh, choose the next Dalai Lama, even though the Dalai Lama is like a religious figure who is, uh, you know, d- determined at birth, and they they actually stole away like a, a child who was designated to be the guy who picks the Dalai Lama. Like there's two roles. One role picks the Dalai Lama, the other role is the Dalai Lama, and they stole the child that picks the Dalai Lama. Yeah, I hear there's there's a lesser Lama, the Pashan Lama, I, I believe, and yeah, yeah, I, the, yeah, that, right, that's the Pashan Lama. That's yeah, right. and I think there's yeah people who, you know, uh, some believe yeah the the current Pashan Lama is 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 only a pretender. It's kind of hard to find solid evidence when it's reincarnation and all that. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I would say aside from those two things, which only being there briefly, it's hard to kind of feel the grinding, uh, you know, discomfort with that. I mean, the experience of the city was, I, I, I think, it, it's hard to kind of capture what it is here. Over here, people in the Bay Area, at least, this is considered like the worst outcome for a city. He's like, don't turn us into Hong Kong uh, anytime you talk about any kind of buildings. And... Yeah, after being there, I just really wonder how anyone wouldn't want to live in a place that's like Hong Kong. It felt like the future. Yeah, it kind of matters what you're yeah. looking for. If you're looking at uh, Hong Kong, pull up Google Maps or something and take a look at it. It's incredible. Look at the main Hong Kong island uh, and how much of it is just pristine wilderness. It's most of the island. The part that is developed is a narrow strip on the uh, coast. And they, because they develop intensely and have more skyscrapers than the city, they are able to keep so much of it undeveloped, which is very different than... You know, when you look at uh, Earth from space in general, you're struck by how much that just everything looks, looks like nature. You almost can't see really any man-made structures at all. So uh, nature has us beat by a lot still. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing. People talk about, like, oh, look at all this land we could, you know, we could develop. But, it, you know, land is not what's scarce here, but having kind of dense urban areas that people like to live and work, yeah, there's only a, a, a very small amount that's that. And as far as making every inch pay off, that's the direction Hong Kong went. And because it is incredibly, you know, uh, just the amount of intensity on each 
uh, about a development, the infrastructure is absurd. I've, outdoor escalators, it, it, the subway is cheap and and just in, just incredibly efficient. Speaking as someone who is just yeah. suffers with the Bart and the Caltrain here, they're 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 famous for their subway system as one of the most uh, 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 well-run subway systems on the planet. Uh, and uh, my understanding is that they use what what what's called value capture to fund it so so whenever whenever a new subway stop is going to get planned uh they already know ahead of time more or less uh what the expected amount of land value increase around each stop is going to be and they can basically you know take out bonds to pay for that with the expectation that those bonds will be paid off by the increase in land value. So basically no taxes on existing capital or existing labor or anything needs to happen. You just need to uh, know that like this is a good investment that is actually going to raise land value. And if it does and you can collect that value, then everybody pretty much wins without even the landowners shouldn't really complain because you don't you don't even tax them at a hundred percent. So even they win the, the 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 increment that they gain is is bigger than what they're going to lose. The, the, you know, the, they'll, they'll only lose eighty percent of the, the in, increment that gain. Yeah, the, the, or whatever in, in Hong Kong. The the, uh, the the nickname I heard is that yeah the uh, MTC there is I don't know if that's right but uh yeah the subway system there in Hong Kong it's it's a real estate company that happens to have a train running through it and when you think of it that exactly. way it makes a lot of sense why you can afford to run a train they check every foot of the track uh every 3 days and i mean you hear here in the in the bay area the bart will whine over not having enough funding and so on yeah i mean it's it's hard if you're not really if you're just giving away your well, service they run huge budget surpluses in Hong Kong. Uh, the last figure I heard, I think it was from 2014, was that uh, they get about 45% of their revenue, according to this uh, this nonprofit I, I found online. They're called uh, Civic something. I'll, I'll remember the name in a moment. But they yeah, they say that 45% of the revenue uh, comes from land and they are pulling in four times the uh, the the revenue that they actually spend each year, um, not just from land, but all the taxes together. So they have so much money, they don't know what to do with it. And at the same time, they have extremely low taxes, which makes them an attractive place to start businesses. And yep. when you think about it, right, like what is it that humans actually are doing in this thing called the economy and production and all that work? We're generating wealth. <laughs> and so when you, cre- you have good investments, they should generate more wealth than they cost. And so, you know, everybody's always concerned about debt all the time, public debt, private debt. Well, you know, this is... The, you, obviously, there is wealth being generated. So the, the 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 question is, who is who is benefiting from, for instance, public infrastructure when we build it? Right. Somebody has to benefit, and if the people benefiting are the people who are paying for it, then it's more fair. If if every if the people who are benefiting 
are doing at the expense of everyone else, then it starts to seem pretty unfair. And that's, that's, a, that's a key distinction, I think. Yeah, Hong Kong has always been a, a darling of the libertarian uh, set of just saying, oh, look, they, they tax their labor and their companies less and look at you know how much their success is. And it's true, they have uh, 15%... Uh, maximum uh, income tax, I believe, or maybe that's uh, overall, and corporate tax is also one of the lowest in the world, and they have a lot of business. It's it's very streamlined to do business there, a lot of small businesses, but the same libertarians, they, they don't tend to say, hey, how do you get infrastructure if you don't tax? And Hong Kong, uh, yeah, they, they basically find a way to make world-class infrastructure out of nothing, to a degree. If you just right, and, and and this is there. There are there are people who think, okay, you know, you should can and should do things privately, and 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 of course, uh, if you look at Hong Kong or whatever, you can actually subcontract almost like a lot, a lot of a lot of what's going on. So like those subways can be subcontracted. The uh, almost uh, you could even subcontract out the collection of taxation itself. That's called tax farming. You can subcontract pretty much all that stuff. The the the, the key is really who is owning uh, what at the end of the day, right? So and who and who has the the right? Who who is who is given equal value in this society, right? And so when when you have a land as as seen as a common resource owned by everyone, you know it doesn't. All that, all that, all of that revenue that's coming back, you know, or being spent out, it, it's all, uh, it's all being recycled back into the pockets of of the common owners, right? Not just being stiffened off by a subset of the owners. Yeah, I was reading W.W. Uh, yeah. w. Robinson's Landing California uh, just a bit ago, and it just it's anguishing over and over again. They didn't, you know, lease out the land or, or use the land. They sold off the land forever in order to, to get railroad lines in the 19th century. And now some extremely valuable real estate is just gone for them now because they wanted to save a few bucks on railroad lines uh, before your great-great-grandfather was born. It's... it's it's Yeah, well, uh, Henry George uh, actually became different. famous yeah. became famous by... Uh, basically doing journalism about all the land grants to railroad interests during the the 1800s and uh California just uh like most of the land in California was like land grants to railroads yeah and it's just kind <laughs> of incredible the well, map the almost the entire map of California it's like i would say like just eyeballing it 70% was owned by <laughs> the the, the railroads yeah, and it's funny to look what you get out of it. In Hong Kong, they keep the land, and they have a, a subway that's out of this world. And here in California, we gave away the land of the railroads, and we have a you know an expensive Caltrain that tries its best, but just doesn't deliver to its people. KZSU Stanford. Yeah, here it is just, you know, when you talk about why you can get away with it here, of just having larger and larger estates control more of the wealth, and you can't in places like Hong Kong and Singapore, I guess when everyone's, yeah in the same small island and they can't get off it's it's you have to keep the rabble from uh from just rising up i think that's one part of it and why you might it tend to see to me that there is a lot of uh in a like income inequality in singapore and to a much larger degree hong kong 
um, like the, the Gini coefficients are actually higher than, than the United States. But, uh, you know, there's sort but, of... But Hong Kong... I think there's a Hong Kong's floor. a little different. Hong Kong... So, Hong, the, Jake and I were talking prior to this, but basically... Uh, the immigration policies of Singapore and Hong Kong are very different, and uh, it's important to keep in mind uh, the, the, the the mall aspect of of Singapore is so, somewhat of a deception because uh, you know you're right it's 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 created a, a, as a conscious sort of immigration policy like they just don't let anyone in they're very ethno nationalist over there and they don't you know, uh, they don't have what Hong Kong has, which is basically f- people, poor people flocking from surrounding regions hoping for a better life. And so basically what happened with Hong Kong and why they they have a historical kind of connotation of being overcrowded and lots of poor people is that, uh, in particular, the worst as- worst example of that would be the Kowloon Walled City, which doesn't exist anymore. But it was a giant, probably the largest uh, squatter uh, like city or, or region in, in the world. It was a three-dimensional, it was a, it was a, like slum. Three-dimensional, yeah. Yeah, it just it was, right. So it, uh, it, you don't normally see slums that uh, are in like a high-rise uh, scenario, and and it was very strange uh, place, it's like shanty uh, towns with tin roofs and like, but corrugated it wasn't. It, it wasn't. It was almost like anarchy. Anarchy. Police wouldn't really go in. Terrible. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. I mean, there there wasn't really uh, government. Uh, there wasn't land titles. There wasn't taxes. There wasn't anything in there. Uh, but it's sort of like uh, the the favelas in Brazil. There, there's no land ownership, but there's a lot of gangs that kind of run it. So that's you know this this concept of of Hong Kong being a overcrowded place full of poor people I, I think really comes from this this immigration to uh, Hong Kong but outside of the Kowloon trying to get in yeah and outside of Kowloon which actually doesn't even exist anymore uh, you, you didn't really have the same thing but uh, you did have lots of like people cramming into apartments you know five people in an apartment or something and that scenario is is very similar to a lot of immigration uh, stories around the world. So Mexicans immigrate to the United States, oftentimes with large families living in small cramped quarters. But the question you have to ask is, why are they moving there? <laughs> and clearly Hong Kong to them seemed like the land of opportunity, just like America seems like the land of opportunity to many people around the world. So. So you are going there to, to raise yourself up. And so the economic mobility in Hong Kong was actually pretty good. And, you know, while they're constantly being refreshed with a lot of poor immigrants, I don't really think that any kind of poverty there can be attributable to there. I think it really the overwhelming story is one of economic success. I think it's an interesting open question. Uh, in Hong Kong, they have been struggling keeping affordable rents. Over uh, half the people live in public housing in Hong Kong, and some of the housing that you can rent for market rates is increasingly you know, cramped and expensive. But I, I, I wonder what are the reasons you can attribute it? Is it just that Hong Kong has more up against it? You know, it has less 
places that are developed, and it uh, is constantly being hit with you know uh, you know new uh, citizens immigration. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think I think you you basically summarize the, the the main forces. It's just a question of well, how do you square that away with the land leasing concept? And actually, um, under a true Georgia system, right? If you if you really had a hundred percent kind of land value uh, funded government, then uh, rents wouldn't necessarily go down because you know it, it's it's kind of weird to think about, but rent, like a lot of other things, is is actually both artificially too low and artificially too high at the same time and it becomes hard to think about what a, a what a, a properly functioning system would actually how that would function what happens over time really should be actually that rents can and should be rising and uh the, the so the the only question is really sh- is who should own those rents so if rents are rising but we we are the landowners. We should be happy about that. So, okay, we're all paying high rent, but we're getting a lot, so we can afford our own rent and then some, right? So that that's not it's not so bad if if uh, if it's commensurate. You know, you're 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 so, you're so the to, owner. So to jump in, uh, well, so what what is the general mechanism of you saying that all rent should be rising? Is this is this assuming just a greater you know, scarcity of of uh, this is the assuming normal kinds of trends are are taking place. Uh, rising populations lead to greater uh, GDP, velocity of money. Uh, you know, uh, this you know you know especially with modern monetary systems, you got inflation and lending and monetary expansion, right? And this happens as a result of uh, economic progress every time. You know, you got more lending taking place, uh, more population, then you're going to see more, more dollars floating around, and then dollars need to land somewhere, and they like to land on assets that people think are going to rise in value. But, uh, but if if land value tax is put in place, they're not going to land is not going to be the place where the, these funds are misdirected. They're going to go to more useful areas, but. The rent uh, is still going to be there because land is going to be is always worth something to the users. It's just not worth something. To, it wouldn't be worth something to own because you'd be paying tax taxes commensurate with your income. So you, you wouldn't want to own the land. But the, the renters still have uh, all this incentive to go, uh, you know, bid up prices of land to to meet all the all the rising demand for goods and services. and Yeah, I guess there's a lot of different variables floating around. I guess one thing you could say that, yeah, certainly right now you, you tend to see rents rising everywhere in the cities. I think a big question is, are there any cities that are too big? I think some cities there's demand to make them bigger than they are now, uh, but is there any cities where it's actually you know too big of a dense urban core that you know they've they they're fine. They've hit their carrying capacity. No more room. It's hard to say that's even happened. Even if you talk about all the skyscrapers in Manhattan, there's still a demand to make this a bit bigger, which might be why rents are. Well, one can make an argument that the planners and the all the residents are responding to the incentives 
of their tax system to create walkable communities because planners right now, uh, I, we, we talk with this guy, Chuck Marone, who uh, runs an organization called Strong Towns. He was a planner, especially uh, uh, working on a lot of road planning. And he noted that, you know, this concept of this road, the, the, the ugly hybrid of the street and the road that wasn't very good at either is this pervasive feature of suburban United States and rural United States. And why do these, you know, strip mall filled, you know, 50 mile an hour uh, roads or, or 45 mile an hour roads, you know, uh, crop up where it's like, it's like not really a, a, a nice livable street type of atmosphere, but it's not really a good like highway transportation uh, thing either because you're stopping all the time. Yeah, personal. You know, it's the worst of all worlds. Personal experience. And of, this is responding to the land incentives that, that he, you have to build it everywhere. They're they're not all doing this because it's a it's in fashion. Nobody likes the strodes. It's just that that we've zoned everything in a certain way. We've taxed everything in a certain way. People want to live according to what makes the most financial sense for them. Yeah, I guess uh, your personal experience on best and worst experiences being on foot uh, while, you know, being away in a different city. Worst experience was San Diego, California, uh, near Fighter Town, the Air Force Base. And uh, just you, you were stranded. Uh, I was I was actually pulled over by an officer for walking the side of a highway where I wasn't allowed to. I tried to walk to a McDonald's. It took about two hours, uh, and just just dismal, just just a dismal experience. Whereas right. in Hong Kong, no one owns cars. I mean, very few people own cars, and it is incredibly uh, easy to get around town. Uh, we could get around from one part of the city to another, uh, pretty much guaranteed under ten minutes. And yeah, just it, yeah, it just you you could not imagine a a less friction filled experience to get from one place to another. And no matter where you are, you're a short walk away from a surprisingly uh, rich public park. Uh, there was you know free aviaries, free zoos. It's just the amenities of just being around on foot is just incredible. I love not yeah. owning a car. Uh, mm-hmm. li- living in Brooklyn. Um, you know, it's just, it's a pain to have one. You always, you, you know, you got to pay for insurance. You've got to change your oil. You have to, you hey, know, you to drop your whole week to, to, to get it fixed. And it's, it's a nightmare. I mean, and I'm not to say that the use of automobiles isn't um, a great modern amenity. It's just, I would rather rent one when I go, um, you know, if I if I want to expedite my trip to Philadelphia, or I could just get a, you know, a nine dollar megabus ride uh, to Philly or DC or whatever. There really is no reason um, for me to to have a car when there's a great public transportation system. And if public transportation is funded in in a way that it it can increase the revenue to the government by more than the cost of the uh, the infrastructure and specifically the transportation infrastructure itself, then it's a win-win uh, for everybody. Um, just recently, BART passed a measure to fund a bond uh, vis-a-vis land value capture. Um, 
So it's happening in the Bay Area. It's a, I think it's really just a matter of getting people to see that this this isn't just an example of a one you know example of a creative way to fund public infrastructure. This is part of a coherent uh, philosophy about the way that you should pay for things as and, and, a, a and society. The, congest- the congestion pricing is interesting. It it sort of shows. Um, multiple things at once, uh, but one one of the things it shows, I think, is that people actually kind. W- w- one of the reasons why people don't even like this concept, uh, and uh, and it it really is, I think, to some degree, a psychological issue. Like people just don't understand the mechanisms at work. So, like with the closest analogy that, uh, or, or closest system that anyone is experienced with to congestion pricing would be surge pricing with Uber and Lyft. Uber and Lyft, uh, you know, if it's a busy rush hour during a snowstorm or something like that, you know, uh, you can see surge pricing go five times the normal rate. And nobody, you know, wants to be surprised with having to pay five times as much for what they're used to paying, you know, a very small amount for. Uh, but when you think about the economics behind all this, like, well, okay, well, who wants to drive in a snowstorm, right? Who wants to be the guy to g- get out there and go risk your own, uh, uh, maybe life even, uh, being out there in a, in a dangerous condition, right? Uh, you know, you, you, you need to reward people to do that. You need to create incentive for them to do that. And and you also want to get people off the road if they if they don't really really need to be there. And uh, uh, the best the the best thing you can do is to price it high when the demand is high. It, it encourages people who have other options to pursue them, and it, it encourages people who are ambitious to provide more more services to others. So it. It really gets both the, the 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 demand down and the supply up at the same time, which you need. Yes, yeah, so I suppose. And, I suppose one, yeah. one a big question you ask is just what do you want you know your city to offer you? You get a few things for free, and we see there are cities that basically were able to offer them, you know, sensible commutes and you know transit that gets you around and a lot of things in your city that make it convenient. And those aren't the things that we choose we want in our cities. We have chosen that using old tools, avoiding things like congestion pricing, we would rather just kind of see things, you know, get congested. But we get something for free, which is we tend to get some people get huge windfall profits on, you know, real estate they they own. That's something we get yeah, for and, free. And you really don't get anything for free. There is no free lunch. So you wait. You When there's no congestion pricing, everybody waits. So it sounds, it feels like it's free, but it's not. Yeah, I mean, it, you you get the freedom of never having to pay anything, but you get the product that that corresponds with that. Uh, and yeah, I mean, everything is everything is a choice, and it's interesting to look at for uh, you know cities that have chosen different tools, uh, value capture in really dramatic ways, and what they've gotten out of it. Uh, as opposed to we kind of see what demand plus 1970s style uh, urban planning give you here in the United States in a city like the Bay Area, and you mm-hmm. tend to, it tends to be 
you don't get the amenities you had in the 70s. Everything you love then gets worse, and you get very little outside of real estate profits that uh, counteract that. Uh, well, with Prop 13, the, the, the real pro- one of the real like uh, ways that it really kicks us while we're down or whatever is that it, it's it's basically uh, age discriminatory. Like the longer you've owned property, the the more you benefit. So it's not just that it's like concentrating. It's also like generational warfare. It's it's it really is the status. What uh, one thing? This is very little to do with what we're talking about. But one thing culturally, I really loved about getting around Hong Kong is it's the only place I've seen people actually stand on the right and then move on the left in escalators. I've never seen anywhere else in the world where people don't block escalators, and that was that was a wonder. Uh, I guess I noticed that as well in uh, Singapore. Um, you know, there are some theories behind why maybe the, the Asian Tigers uh, did as, as well as they have, and you know, the, the theories revolve around Confucianism and uh, something similar to a Protestant work ethic. But, a, you know, I lived in Sweden for a few years, and I, I noticed a kind of rigid um, mindset of, you know, don't stand out, don't do anything uh, that would be deemed even minorly socially deviant. Uh but uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure that plays a part in it. I mean, but at the same time, you've got mainland China that where Confucianism even came from, and they haven't seen the same type of economic growth as as Hong Kong. So, uh, but but I think those two factors together. That I mean, there's many factors involved, but the fact that they collect uh, land rent, the, the the growing value of land, and people have the mindset of, you know, especially in Singapore, that we have scarce resources, we have to show the world how great we are, we have to sacrifice everything for the sake of of growth, even our civil liberties. I mean, in, in some ways, I feel like Singapore is an exercise in how you have a lot of the right economic policies, but the wrong method by which to go about achieving them. Uh, I would hope that we could create a society where more people would sort of um, look for the best way of doing things, be pragmatic problem solvers, rather than, uh, you know, just sort of stick to tradition and um, even when those traditions are causing urban sprawl, environmental destruction, poverty... Uh, yeah, so so Taiwan uh, is is another another uh, country that has also uh, yeah uh, learned from value capture and it's part of its predominant uh, founding principles. Uh, so yeah, but it, it it didn't it didn't have the same social repression that uh, that some of these other options have. So so basically, I think Taiwan is is kind of a. A more, right now, a more normal society by our standards. It it, it is a multi-party democracy. It is a place with relative free speech, relative normal liberal principles that we would recognize. Um, and they don't they they're they're not under threat from the People's Republic of China, or they're they're not 
you know, a, a giant mall that is, you know, kicking out, uh, uh, you know, an, anything that doesn't, you know, conform to their to their cleanliness policies or anything. It's it's just a, a much more recognizable type of place to to, to Americans and. Yet um, their history is still uh, very Georgist oriented, so they they are kind of a more more of an example of what maybe the United States might look like if we were to implement a policy like that. And you know, Taiwan is has been just as prosperous as these other options, but they've you know the the the, the one kind of the one distinguishing feature of them I I, I might think is, is actually they had to undergo a, an actual land reform uh, policy that uh, other places did not. And so uh, the, the, the backdrop is that they came from, uh, came out of the Kuomintang. The Kuomintang were the national party uh, for China that controlled China prior to the, the revolution where the People's Republic was formed. And the, the, so they controlled all of China, of, of which Taiwan was always considered part of China. And then after the Chinese Revolution, uh, the Kuomintang fled and took refuge in the island of Taiwan. But uh, they continued to maintain that they were the real Republic of China. And likewise, the People's Republic of China has maintained that Taiwan belongs to them and they are not on diplomatic relations and uh, you know <laughs> they they don't want any of their trading partners to have different diplomatic uh, relations with with Taiwan or or anything like that so but tai, Taiwan is is a extremely prosperous and we do trade with them anyways uh, no matter we just don't want to formally Recognize them. That's why Donald Trump's phone call to Taiwan was uh, considered uh, a, a, a diplomatic taboo because we're not, according to the status quo, the United States is not supposed to recognize the legitimacy of Taiwan. But to t I guess before we get to I guess the land reform in uh, Taiwan, uh, the land reform in Singapore. Are, are you familiar, Jake, with the uh, Land Acquisition Act? I was looking up a little about this. Uh, a little bit, yeah. That that it was the method by which the government came into greater control of, uh, yeah, just just more area of uh, Singapore. Just after World War II, there, um, <clears throat> you know, there was a lot of desperate people. There, a lot of men were put in POW camps, and things were kind of unsettled. And they wanted to prevent the landlords from sort of taking advantage of the, the situation. Um, and, you know, that combined with the fact that uh, Raffles, who was the, the Englishman who, uh, you know, I guess founded Singapore, um, is that, uh, you know, that's the way they f originally funded most government was through, uh, was, was through land rent, was through, through land value. So, it was, it was sort of a, a natural extension of that of that history, um, but but also a way to sort of ameliorate the aftermath of of World War War Two. Not, not all of the that. Asian, not all of the Asian tigers really had to go through a, a disruptive process in quite the same way. 
like for instance japan has long had national land uh sort of like ownership and and taxation even under imperial japan in the 19th century they were doing land taxation so um you know even when macarthur took control of japan and enacted georgia's reforms there it was sort of almost like returning to an older revenue system that they had already had a lot of familiarity with so it, it, but with you know taiwan it was not really the same with uh they they needed big land reform because they did have a lot of landlords controlling everything and they also had japanese who had uh sort of conquered taiwan and and controlled a lot of the land and they they can they were landlords too but the kuomintang really had no ties to the native taiwanese landlords nor to the japanese landlords so they didn't really feel any any political vest, you know vested interest uh to 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 you know appease with them so they they just they they were able to just enact land reform and they didn't totally dispossess these these uh landlords but they certainly uh you know forced them out more or less and so what happened was they did it in stages they first said that about a third of the land would sort of become in control of the uh like by like the, like the shares like they would say like 33% share of the of the farm that you that that you worked on belonged to the farmer and then over time then they said the remaining two thirds that was not controlled by the farmers well they said now that also needs to be controlled by the farmers but we're going to we're going to actually pay you for that part but over time so so they 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 you know they didn't they they did expropriate some of that land but they didn't they didn't expropriate all of it um yeah i wonder how much has to do with the uh, culture and how much yeah. they're able to you know how how much depends upon culture when they get away with that i'm 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 curious in singapore the land acquisition act um, 1966 was introduced i think what's funny about this it was kind of a reverse Prop 13 for a while. In 73, when it started, they basically paid market rates for land and they, they bought it off. And in 1973, they said, well, starting at this date, <laughs> we're going to start using 1973 prices forever. So then for yeah. up until 2007, they were paying you know uh, 1973 prices to acquire land. It stopped at that point. I guess they owned enough at that point. They felt they didn't need that anymore. Uh, I, I just really wonder. It's it's a neat little trick if it can work out and work to everyone's benefit, but it's kind of very different than the American Howard Jarvis attitude of you know when I buy land, it, it's consecrated in my blood, et cetera, et cetera, and that. Yeah. No. And with the Kuomintang, I think it was a real sh- shift for the people. You know, they 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 had to get people used to this idea that no you know the land now belongs to everybody and and this comes back to the philosophy of the the founder of the Kuomintang uh Sun Yat-sen Sun Yat-sen is renowned all over all over East Asia uh he's re- he is renowned in Singapore and in Malaysia among the Chinese minority there and and basically anywhere where there's a, a Chinese population you'll see a lot of reverence for Sun Yat-sen, and Sun, Sun Yat-sen 
had his three principles of the people, and it, it was basically nationalism, democracy, and and so-called livelihood of the people. And uh, the, that last one, the livelihood of the people, re- referred to more or less, you know, uh, an equal share to the fruits of the earth. And he explicitly said that Henry George was a, a major influence on him. So he read Henry George. He uh, thought that land value tax ought to be the only source of funding for for uh, China and for Taiwan. Uh, but he, uh, he, he, his vision was not fully accomplished, but uh, the land value tax does operate in Taiwan. They very recently scaled back some of the, the land value taxation, unfortunately, uh, like late last year. But, oh, really? Um, Any more details yeah, on that? Recently. How'd, how'd that go? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know all the details of how much they've scaled it back last year. But it just—I I think the bill passed their their, their Congress last year, uh, and that 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 process started. Um, so we'll we'll see if if Taiwan starts to fall uh, more into a stagnant kind of non uh, you know non land value. Well, I guess uh, we have sharing kind of place. I guess it's up for us to not just say, "Oh, look, it happened," but. If they were saying, "Oh, let's change this," is, do we have any ideas on why? I'm really not familiar with the political oh, movement. Oh, it's, it's a good question. Uh, I, I would be very interested in finding out uh, what political forces were behind it. My my general assumption with these things is, is it, it it usually goes the way of the Howard Jarvis type of uh, uh, operation, where you know uh, they had this in Australia. Uh, in a lot of places uh, where, you know, they have land value taxation and there's all these, you know, uh, great, there's there's a boom time, everybody's feeling uh, uh, confident and, you know, it's it just people want to cash in on the, on the rising prosperity and, and that, that, that just happens a bunch. Uh, how does, how to solve political question uh, Singapore neatly solves this, I guess, with uh, only having one party, right? <laughs> but, it's a clean uh, solution. Other places, yeah. Other places, other places, uh, you know, with democracy, uh, I think are, are really more vulnerable to this. So, like I said, Taiwan is a democracy, and that democratic aspect to them makes them vulnerable to uh, public whim. But but Sun Yat-sen is still very revered, and his policies, uh, you know, I, I I would assume are going to still hold a lot of sway, and uh, and you know this the, the 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 land value taxation there will will continue to occur even after this late latest right. Yeah, I'd like to talk more in depth about the Dr. Sun Yat-sen's self-assessment. Uh, there's a couple of economics papers I'm reading on it. Uh, it's it seems like I never understand how he separates how the state deals with improvements on the land. Because if you self-assess everything, you either take it or leave it. That makes sense. But if you basically they buy the land at the price you say you assess at, well, who's going to assess the improvements? I I, I still you need understand. independent. 
assessors, it, 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 you run into the same normal assessment problems with uh, that. However, uh, other people have tried to, to solve that question without using assessors, uh, and it, it does get tricky, and you have to kind of overestimate uh, in order to keep it kind of kind of fair for everybody. There's also another fairness argument, which is that basically moving to that kind of system where you're, you're worried always that, that your land's going to go on the auction block is a big disruption to the expectations that everybody currently has built in for everything that they do. Like, you know, you're expecting to retire based on the nest egg of your home. You're expecting, you know, all these things you've planned your life around them and and, and to change that is, is a big issue so any changes you know within an existing system have to be gradual have to take into account the people who've had one expectation and maybe set different rules based on when you were born and based and for your first home or your uh, you know that kind of thing uh, now, with uh, with a new system, when you're setting up something from scratch, you can set the expectations from the beginning however you choose, and I think that's where you would have a lot more uh, possibility to use something like self-assessment, because, okay, your land will always be on the auction block if you don't assess correctly, but you knew that before you ever signed up. So it's okay. I think it's important, you know, you know, for you know any kind of scheme to work with human beings to, you know, at le- you know definitely take into account what matters for people. Yeah, you, know, you can't just treat stability as worth nothing. You can't treat, you know, locality of community as worth nothing. You can't treat people as just you know monads in in the ether. You have to actually kind of say that people do want a stability, and yeah, I think that definitely can't be discounted. Uh, it is kind of interesting. We were talking about the Gini quotient earlier, inequality in Singapore. Uh, I get the also the number offhand, 30% of the population don't have green cards. They're just maybe, in, uh, you can describe as an underclass. I can't speak to that. But uh, here's an article I have in front of me. It's by uh, Feng Sok Young, uh, just saying that Thomas Piketty has... I'm sure I'm butchering the f- proper French pronunciation, uh, but he has said that you know income is not the way to look at. You should look at wealth instead of the Gini uh, coefficient, which is the inequality of incomes. Uh, for most of the world, the bottom 50% doesn't have a whole lot of the wealth. In the United States, 2% is owned by the bottom 50%. In Europe, it's more like 5%. Uh, Singapore... You know, you you can say it has certain ways of keeping people out, but the bottom fifty percent of its population own uh, a, a quarter of its of its wealth, which is unusually high. And basically, what Piketty believed is maybe a almost an upper range what you can plausibly believe the bottom fifty percent can own. And yeah, I guess it's is that something you kind of see around? Does it look like you don't see upper class, lower class when you're spending time in in Singapore, Jack? Yeah, I, I I feel I mean despite knowing that their Gini coefficient was higher than the United States, that's not what I experienced. I, I didn't experience um, greater inequality there. I mean, there's a particular neighborhood I can't remember 
the name anymore. They say, oh, when we go through this neighborhood, it's really bad. And we drove through, and I thought, this is nothing. Um, you know, when I'm at, like, Fifth and Mission in San Francisco, and there's people with needles hanging out of their arms, that's really bad. Uh, this was, I, I didn't even really notice um, that there was CD activities going on. It felt fine walking around uh, at night. You know, the difference is that uh, maybe you drive a Ferrari versus um, a BMW. <laughs> now, now, not to say that everyone is like that, but yes, the, it, it does seem to me that uh, what we would intuitively think of as real differences in in wealth um it's it's, it's a much flatter distribution there there's diminishing um, marginal utility to more wealth and so you can actually the difference between you and uh elon musk uh, in terms of living conditions is n not actually as great as the difference between you and a sub-saharan african right right even and though, I don't ultimately care necessarily about the inequality. I mean, I care about it from a from the perspective of democratic institutions and not being able to erode those because some people have so much more power than others. But from the perspective of human dignity, as long as the floor is high enough, I don't care above that how much inequality uh, there is. If someone is like Elon Musk and you know is doing all of these super innovative things and trying to get the, the world on electric cars and I, that's great you deserve a great a big a um you know return for doing that and that's very much baked into the singaporean uh ideology uh they they try to to promote meritocracy there and, and okay. I, i'm inspired by that as long as it's, it's a true meritocracy a great rule of thumb for uh, economic justice is actually just just are our people's wealth uh, uh, coming at the expense of somebody else? And as long as you know inequality is not coming at the expense, like when you say when you say in particular the way I heard it phrased is nobody's uh, wants should come at uh, should come at the expense of someone else's needs. Uh, but I, I would really say rights, you know, and, and that, that that is the the, the core question. Uh, do people have rights, you know, or, or are they being violated by by someone else? And and you know, if if they're not, then the the inequality is of a different moral sort. You know, you might wish to eradicate all inequality, but there's there must be tiers of which ones are the most concerning. And, and the ones that are most concerning are, are basically when people are being deprived or stolen from. Abject poverty, suffering. I mean, that, that's not to say that, uh, you know, we, we, we need to worry about political lobbying. We need to worry about people buying power and subverting democratic institutions and and those sort that sort of inequality um while it doesn't you know it doesn't it, it's not directly responsible for suffering in the same way that uh you know so somebody not being able to eat or have a roof over their head is but you know uh, 
it well, is important. So we need to have checks on that as well. But the most immediately concerning is, you know, <laughs> people, children starving to death. There has well, to be like, something think about done about monopolies. That. Like a lot of people are concerned about monopolies, but are all monopolies equally scary? You know, if you have monopoly on Pokemon cards, because you're the only person that's allowed to sell Pokemon cards. That is a, no, I'm amazingly is scared if that's happening. I guess, yeah. Whereas, whereas if water is much more important. Yeah, so, I'm, so you don't want one person controlling all the water, but one person can control all the Pokemon cards and maybe we'll live. <laughs> uh, well, let's wait and see. Uh, I mean, yeah, we were talking about cities here that you talk about just the basic, you know, you know, needs and rights. Yeah, they, they they have the money and they spend it on public housing. They don't have the homeless problem that we can't afford to take care of these people here because they have ways of self-financing to make it possible. Uh, I, I just want to point this out. One one interesting thing about the Gini coefficient we talked about a bit is when you compare Singapore, I got a 412, this is from a few years ago, that is higher than the United States, higher than the UK, uh, and it's slightly lower than Hong Kong at the time. It's 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 worth noting we're comparing countries to cities. If you can compare a city like London or New York City, those are both substantially above Hong Kong and Singapore. So I think a real apples apples comparison is cities to cities because when you I, when you talk about rural populations, it's a whole different economic game there. I agree. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of ways that you shouldn't compare Singapore to. Uh, larger countries with multiple, uh, and also and also the cost of living in rural areas is so much lower that it can be deceptive. You can live on very little income in a rural area and have a a, a much higher standard of living than if you had that same income in, in the city. So it's, well, this is a, this know, is a big uh, thing on the left and the right right now. Is just on the left can we fix our rural areas with the same tools we can fix our urban areas? And I think if you talk to people who you know support Bernie Sanders and so, you're getting kind of a consensus, yes, the same tools apply everywhere, minimum wage, you know, access to college. And I think if you talk to people of more... Bernie George- Sanders came from Vermont, a rural area. That is interesting. But I guess it is in the impoverished rural, uh, you know, poverty you see in in a lot of the Rust Belt areas and so on. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that... It's, you know, urban versus rural economies do have different, uh, you know, features to an extent. And I think, I, I think I'm, I'm perhaps maybe intensely cognizant of that. I'm, I'm always wondering, am I too cognizant of it? Are the same tools likely to work out? Uh, I just don't know. The Fight for 15, I tend to think of Fight for 15 maybe isn't enough around the Bay Area and, you know, maybe is more than enough in a place that just needs more economic activity uh but enough well i don't mind that so much i mean a big part of georgism is that uh you know you you are shifting wealth from people who occupy the best locations and say in the central business district the banks and the big corporations um to people that aren't occupying you know those locations so you know if you want to do that directly by yeah, well, there's that, but then you know, if you wanted to give a citizen's dividend, um, what some people are calling a, a basic income, uh, but to pay it out of uh, land rent, um, you don't need to worry about what the minimum wage is because 
there's a there's literally a minimum income <laughs> that that you get regardless of your work, whether you work a, a job that you hate or not, because well, most um, minimum wage jobs are probably ones that people are going to find. They're not, they're not doing it for the love uh, of it. Usually, awful, right? So, so yeah, there's a, there's a, I think a lot more we could have talked about here. I know we have to wind down. I have a whole thing about uh, Qingdao, uh, also known as Tsingtao, uh, like the beer, which was the German Hong Kong and the only place that ever ran successfully completely on a land value tax. There's I, I definitely feel like that's on the table for later. Uh, but yeah, just going around, I guess. And any any final thoughts about your experience? You know, you know, learning about Singapore or learning about Taiwan, and uh, yeah, and just what people should take away from all this. Starting with uh, Jake. Yeah, I, I mentioned it before. I think that um, you know we shouldn't sacrifice the uh, you know our, our civil liberties for the ability to do um, to to make really important policy changes. I mean. What's great about a country like China that's just so authoritarian, I mean, despite all of the obviously awful things about China, is that, you know, if they wanted to say something like, well, we're going to do this about um, uh, global warming, we're, you know, we're, we're going to have extremely high uh, taxes on, on this kind of pollution, they could among the party unilaterally decide that and just make it happen um, so that ability to act fast on important decisions uh, is great so I think in, society, in societies like Singapore um, Hong Kong where you have uh, systems of government that are more dominated by one group of people uh, we see some policies that are better and if we're smart we can adopt some of those policies that make sense uh, without giving up, um, you know, w- without giving up what we hold so dear as, you know, Americans and just citizens in general of a, you know, relatively more uh, democratic um, countries. My my uh, my takeaway would would be uh, I, I guess actually kind of. Uh, along similar lines, but in a different direction. So I do think that the, the governmental political structure is, is a is a key takeaway. But that uh, I don't necessarily find the planning or anything else to be really essential at all. I think you. I think actually what what you see with Asian tigers is the diversity of either lack of planning in the case of Hong Kong or extreme planning, like in the case of Singapore. Mm-hmm. And both of both approaches potentially working or potentially not working in other cases, and that though that's not really the essential part, but the essential part is the, the land value taxation itself. But uh, the the political question is how to keep it, how to keep that there, and the the authoritarian countries can keep it in place because they have a one-party rule. But as someone who is a, is just intrinsically disinclined to to favor that, uh, I, I'm always looking for a, a, a better way. And I think you can you can achieve the same thing through constitutionalism. And actually, Sun Yat Sen 
had a, a, a lot of wisdom on this. He, he actually favored something very much like Montesquieu with the, the separation of powers, but instead of having three branches of government, he wanted five branches of government, and uh, he, he believed in strong constitutions. And I, I, I agree that I think a strong constitutional structure is the way that you preserve essential liberties and essential governmental functions uh, from the democratic whims, right? So the de- d- democracy might one day, by majority rule, decide that a minority group doesn't have the right to live or to speak or to have a religion or whatever. And we have the Bill of Rights that say, no, um, you know, you would need to move heaven and earth and get, you know, all, you know, almost a revolution to to overturn the 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 First Amendment, and so you're, there's, you know, you you can't, you just can't do that in the United States. Yeah, talking about time, I, though, you know, for the 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 price of freedom is, you know, eternal vigilance. I mean, you right. can have you can have a strong constitution and still get something like the Dred Scott case, where you know right. that was just like clearly an infraction of <laughs> the constitution. But yeah, but yeah I, I mean, you're you're looking at it more from the standpoint of if you get the right template, if you have the the the, the right core rules, you have something like most revenue is derived from land and harmed under other people and not from productive activities and you know the 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 right to access to natural resources and you know urban spaces is is enshrined in the constitution that is a recipe that can facilitate all these other good things you know the case you you went to south africa and they have it in the constitution but they don't follow their own constitution so so you are right exactly I think it's it chapter 25.5. They say the land of South Africa belongs to those who live in it, but it doesn't necessarily work that way. I mean, in the same case of Singapore, um, I think they just, part of it is just they got really lucky. They got some, um, fr- from the standpoint of managing the economy, not not on the civil liberties front, they just got some really amazing management. I mean, Lee, Con- Lee Kuan Yew uh w- you know, he, he just, he said, all we're going to do is grow economically. We're not going to encourage the arts. We're not going to, you know, encourage uh, being bohemian musicians. If you, and, and, and I think people feel this pressure in the country that if you are not a highly productive, innovative member of society, you are not a good person. Um, you are not. You are morally not a good person. Um, <laughs> you know. So. So yeah. Like if you have that kind of ruthless, aggressive uh, desire to, to to grow economically, and you've got the kind of hard nosed management to make it happen, you, you can have all the malls and fancy cars and uh, perfectly designed cities, but I think, yeah, I think you're giving up uh, too much. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's when I, I listen to Marxists are saying go on about the hell of capitalism, I disagree on a lot of things, but I think if you just say that, yeah, life is, the only good parts of life are being economically productive, that is that is pretty hellish, and I'm much more likely to agree with the 
uh, the folks who condemn that. But I mean, it's it, when it's the choice of that and suffering. It's uh, but yeah, to go yeah to go back with this. Yeah, I think it's definitely uh, true that I think in America you talk about like just the basic rights of you know having free speech and having the right to chew gum is commingled with something that we think is serving us well, which is the right to speculate on land and all that. And I I I'm always kind of I'm always kind Beautifully of said. yeah. It's I think you go on and you're likely to conflate a lot of things that maybe if we rethink this, we can keep the things we want and not have the things we that just aren't serving us well. And it is interesting to look in all these different cultures how tools that work well for people can exist in a lot of different cultures and serve them in different ways. And uh, yeah, well, it is it is kind of interesting how. Uh, a lot of our language around land it retains all the feudal trappings, and yet we think of ourselves as having freed ourselves from feudalism with the American Revolution. But you know, it really, you know, we say you're the landlord. <laughs> you are, you uh, uh, have, um, you know, all, all titles and all this kind of stuff, ro- uh, royalties well, and. It's rare that you know we we talk about that that people were enslaved in this in this country and you know we've and we've abolished slavery, but you know it, it's interesting to note that all of the privileges associated with land ownership kind of you know created and really helped um, perpetuate that in, in our history. I mean, if you were not a white male, specifically landowner. You could not vote, and furthermore, you could cast your your slaves two thirds vote for policies that would, you know, perpetuate slavery. So the fact that okay, we're done with slavery, therefore the whole landlord thing doesn't matter anymore. I think it has really dire ramifications for so many other policies in, in, in our society, and I'm, I'm definitely not. Um, denigrating the importance of, of slavery or anything like that, but let's let's not forget that you know this this is a major source of power to this day. It's not just you know we don't have an agricultural society anymore. Therefore, you know fe- the feudal trappings don't matter. When a few generations later, zoning to keep you know the wrong element, i.e., black populations out, and redlining to keep them out of you know basically you know development, yeah, is doing the same things of just institutionalizing through land ownership uh, structural poverty. But I, I think even taking away really intentional malevolence and trying to keep people down, I think a big thing we always have to watch out for is, I think, just doing a bad job even when you have the right intentions in mind. I mean, to say that Howard Jarvis, he didn't want to make things bad. He believed that land ownership is an important human right that people really deserve to own their land and have tenure over it. But his policies have led California have one of the lowest rates of home ownership. <laughs> you know, it's right. yeah. well. It's what you said before about conflating, you know, uh, freedom and uh, you know licentiousness, and and thinking that, uh, and it's very common among libertarian circles to think that property uh, in all forms is essential to liberty. Right. So, like, and and one way I think that makes libertarian mindset short circuit is when you talk about taxi medallions, for example. You know, you you say, uh, okay, well, um, you know, should these be 
considered property or not because they're government-granted monopolies, so libertarians do not like the government meddling in you know, whether you can enter an, uh, an industry based on whether you have a license, but then they're, they're also property, right? That is funny. So, <laughs> they, and, 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 and Neil Ferguson tries to make this argument as like a, uh, to the non, to like the whole, you know, Davos crowd, you know, that, that wants to fix the world through NGOs and, and the World Bank, you know, and he, he, he says that, uh, all, all of the poverty around the world, uh, that, uh, could be improved if the, the countries that, are, you know, these people are in allowed for land ownership. And his argument is, he, he basically conflates land and capital like so many people do. Wealth is all one big lump of stuff. And, you know, if, if they all had homes that they owned, they could then take out loans out of their home equity and use those to start businesses and drive economic growth. And that's his argument. And he's not necessarily wrong that having a vibrant lending infrastructure helps new businesses get off the ground, but he, he certainly is getting it all mixed up. He's, he, he's, he's thinking that the only way lending can occur is with you know, uh, securitized loans based on uh, home right. ownership, well, but but that that's yeah. not how how Taiwan and all these other countries uh, experienced rapid growth in reality. Exactly. We've seen it actually well, happen without that. Hernando de Soto, right? Hernando de Soto goes around saying that the way you cure global poverty is through titling, right? It's by giving poor people titles to land so they can get loans. So they can start businesses. And I love and, how his name's the same as the conquistador. That's what he wants yeah. to do. <laughs> well, I'm not <laughs> going to infer that he the, has malevolent. <laughs> well, well I, I, you know, I, I don't know. Um, but basically, uh, you know, think about the ramifications of this. Let's say we did titling all over the world, right? And the people who got titles would suddenly be able to get all these loans to start businesses. But what about all the what about all the people who are maybe tenant farmers on their land that don't own the titles, right? What about the loans they need to get to do their kind of work? Are they just stuck with like microfinance lending? The, the, the whole idea that um, you should get money to start a business on the basis of whether you have uh, collateral in the form of land, I think it's crazy. We should be giving loans on the basis of whether you have a good business plan, yeah, <laughs> about exactly. whether the bank can assess whether you have a good idea, not whether they can recapture um, something that ha that is inert without the, the use of humans to, to to turn it into a productive enterprise. Yeah, in this so situation, you're sense. you're given you're given this you know piece of land, you're given this chit to work with, but you know after you have it, you know it's you can take a loan against it, which means it's yours to lose. You can sell it, and then once you have that, you you kind of imagine a person who has nothing to back them up, or as as opposed to if you don't give them this, and it just kind of is something which is always in their possession, and they don't have the right to lose it. There's the yeah you don't you don't lose the credit worthiness you know the amount of credit. it'd be like Medicare it's like Medicare you can't lose Medicare you know? and if you could you borrow against Medicare, Medicare 
if you could take micro loans against your Medicare to get extra money on your mortgage, I'm sure mortgages would be more expensive and a lot of people would lose their <laughs> Medicare. It's yeah. <laughs> Right, but that's that's explicitly not allowed and we don't allow you to even uh, expend uh, Medicare uh, except on uh, health care expenses. Well, well so, maybe I mean, we can all become yeah. rich if we privatize Medicare and allow it. It will be a vibrant well, new industry. It, it reminds me a lot of Native Americans, right? Like uh, the the way that they were conned out of their land was 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 very similar, right? Okay, we'll get we'll um, tell one chief or one particular person in the tribe, they, okay, you'll be the special person that um, that gets the benefit from the land if you're the sellout, right? But if you think of along the lines of what Ed was saying about um, you know this being a constitutional right to land. You can't you can't give up this fundamental right. You can't just say, "Well, I'll sell you my right to free speech." You know, I'll let you control what I say if you give me a, a loan. I mean, it's just it's yeah. We 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 have to like fundamentally reimagine the, this conception. Of well, we're, our, we're thinking of a lot of in relationship to land. A lot of disruptive new financial products. I'm sure Silicon Valley would like to run with this. There's a lot of cool things that you can make a make a lot of people very rich if this goes out there. Uh, but yeah, I think we have, we started off with Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, a lot of other things. I don't know what you call this whole package, but I think we're wrapping up here. Uh, yeah, thanks for being here today. And uh, yeah, so thanks to Jake and thanks to Ed. Uh, yeah, and that's yeah, thank you, Mark. No worries. I guess that's that's about it. That was the Henry George program. He'll be running here on Tuesdays, 10 a.m. every week. That was a discussion with Ed Miller and Jacob Schwartz-Lucas. Thanks for listening. This is KZSU Stanford.